Hello and welcome to Inside the Americas. I'm Allison Sargent. Coming up on the show this week, more than three weeks after losing his re-election bid, Jair Bolsonaro is challenging the results. He's calling on Brazil's electoral authority to annul many votes cast on electronic voting machines. The Colombian government restarts peace talks with the National Liberation Army. The leftist ELN is the country's largest remaining guerrilla group after the 2016 deal that disbanded the FARC. And El Salvador remains under a state of emergency over widespread gang violence. Tens of thousands have been arrested in a crackdown that's been strongly criticized by rights groups. First, outgoing Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is challenging the election he lost last month to left-wing rival Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro blames a software bug and is demanding the electoral authority annul most of the votes cast on electronic voting machines. Lula's victory has already been ratified by the Superior Electoral Court. Still, Bolsonaro's claims could fuel protests from a small but committed group of his supporters. A desperate bid to cling to power after becoming the first president in Brazil's modern democracy to lose re-election. Jair Bolsonaro and his political coalition have demanded that the country's election authority invalidate all votes that were cast on older models of electronic voting machines in Brazil's October 30th presidential runoff. The machines, which make up nearly 60% of the total vote, have a software bug that leaves their machine ID numbers off of internal logs. Annulling all those votes would leave the far-right incumbent with 51% of the remaining ballots, and thus a new mandate. I want to say that we are here today with only one intention, to contribute to the strengthening of democracy in our country. We are sure that we are strengthening democracy, and by strengthening democracy, we are strengthening Brazil. Brazil's election authority has already declared Bolsonaro's nemesis, left-wing former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, the winner of October's runoff. Experts say the software bug would not affect voting results. The Brazilian Social Democracy Party has called Bolsonaro's latest move senseless. Lula's Workers' Party says it's chicanery that must be punished as bad faith litigation. Enough with the procrastination, irresponsibility and insults to institutions and democracy. The election was decided in the vote and Brazil needs peace to build a better future. Nicknamed the Trump of the Tropics, Bolsonaro spent a good deal of his campaign casting doubt on the integrity of Brazil's electoral process, saying the country's electronic voting system is vulnerable to fraud without any evidence. And though Bolsonaro has authorized his government to prepare for a presidential transition, he has yet to formally concede. Some of his supporters continue to protest weeks after his defeat. Lula, meanwhile, has been busy rebuilding his status as a statesman, drawing a standing ovation at the latest UN climate conference as he vowed to stop deforestation in the Amazon and meeting with foreign leaders in Europe as he prepares to take office for the third time on January 1st. Next, Colombia's latest step to end nearly 60 years of civil war. Gustavo Petro's government has begun fresh peace talks with the leftist National Liberation Army. The ELN is the country's largest remaining guerrilla group after the 2016 deal that disbanded the FARC. Internal division had prevented earlier talks from advancing, but since taking office in August, Petro has vowed to bring about total peace. Just three weeks to achieve peace. 
and turn the page on half a century of violence. It's ambitious, but that's the objective of Colombia's new leftist president, Gustavo Petro. To make it happen, an agreement must be reached with the ELN, the last guerrilla group still active in the country. The first meeting which we have held this morning with the ELN peace delegation is giving us certainty and the deep conviction that we will achieve the goal that unites us. The two parties are meeting on neutral ground in neighboring Venezuela. Unlike the FARC group, ELN guerrillas didn't sign the historic peace agreement in 2016 because of disagreements over the release of prisoners. This time, representatives of the movement say they're optimistic about seeing eye to eye on a common text. This roundtable must be, and we intend for it to be, an instrument of change the kind of wave of change that Colombian society is calling for, and we hope that we don't fail to meet that expectation. But while there are expressions of goodwill from the government, negotiations don't mean suspending military operations against the rebels. If we find someone from the ELN who has an arrest warrant, then we have to capture him. Even if the majority is seeking an end to the violence, a minority of rebel groups still refuse to lay down their arms. Last Saturday, a round of fire was exchanged between a dissident faction of FARC and another armed group, leaving at least 18 dead on the border with Ecuador. Well, this week saw two mass shootings in the United States. The first targeted an LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs. Five were killed and the death toll could have been higher were it not for heroic club goers who subdued the gunman. The 22-year-old shooter is being held for murder and hate crime charges. Just days later, a gunman killed six people and himself at a Walmart store in Chesapeake, Virginia. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been over 600 mass shootings in the U.S so far this year. In El Salvador, a state of emergency declared back in March is still in place over widespread gang violence. Months later, one out of every 100 people in the country are in prison. That's our number of the week. Some of them were arbitrarily detained. While most of the population supports the crackdown, it has been strongly criticized by human rights groups. France 24's Laurence Cuvillier and Mathieu Coman look into the situation in the latest edition of our reporter's show. This is an excerpt from that report. 9 p.m. in San Salvador, in front of El Penalito, or the little prison. These families are waiting the release of their loved ones. Some of them haven't left this sidewalk for several weeks. They hang on the lips of the officer who announces a few names every evening. A few moments later. That evening, two men were released. It's a sign of hope that other families are holding on to. It's very moving. We know that from one day to the next, this could happen to us as well. It's sad for us. We see what's happening here, but we have no news of our children who are on the other side. All of these people asked us to hide their faces out of fear of reprisal. In El Salvador right now, 
More than one out of every 100 people is behind bars. Tomasa and her husband wanted to testify openly. He has been working since he was 18 years old. This was his uniform. Their son worked for a telecommunications agency. He was arrested on June the 6th while installing cables with his crew. His record was clean. The lawyer simply told us that we had to wait. The first hearing has already taken place. He will spend six months in preventative detention while they conduct their investigation. However, the case-by-case -case approach no longer exists. At Joel's first appearance, 162 cases were being reviewed. Since the 6th of June, we still have no idea why he was detained nor what the charges are against him. We imagine it's because of his tattoos. Tattoos, a reason to be charged in El Salvador. Since the end of the civil war in 1992, a new evil has taken hold of the country, the Maras. Ultra-violent gangs that terrorize the population. Two large Maras, the MS and the Deseocho, are fighting for control of the neighborhoods. They wear their allegiance to these groups, even on their faces. The Maras kidnapped Joel's younger sister, Ketty, in 2016. She's been missing ever since, and the investigation has never moved forward. Joel, however, only sported artsy tattoos. He had tattooed his mother's name on his forearm, and this is a palm tree where he depicted himself holding his children by the hand. A lot of people say, it's great what the president is doing, but that's because they haven't experienced it. 54,000 inmates in six months, crammed into already overcrowded prisons. The families have no right to visit, but they have to ensure the provision of white clothes, toilet paper, food and even cleaning products. But the worst thing is not knowing how he is. It's terrible. As a mother, I'm afraid I'm going to go through what many others have gone through in the last few months. When they came to try to get news, they were told that their sons were dead and they were returned in body bags. Human rights groups are caught in a flood of complaints about arbitrary detentions or unexplained deaths in prisons. She's been praised as a light in the dark night of Argentina's military dictatorship. Ebe de Bonafini died this week at the age of 93. She was one of the founders of the Mothers of Plaza de Mayo, a group of women who demanded the whereabouts of the tens of thousands abducted during Argentina's brutal military regime in the 1970s and 80s. Bonafini became a controversial figure in later years for her radical opposition to U.S. governments, a corruption scandal, and her involvement in partisan politics. Circling the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires, just as Ebe de Bonafini had done thousands of times. These Argentinians are paying homage to one of their country's greatest icons in its struggle against dictatorship. For nearly half her life, de Bonafini fought to get justice for the disappeared 30,000 victims of Argentina's brutal military regime that ruled from 1976 to 1983. 
She succeeded in getting women out of their homes, bringing them out into the open to speak out and fight for the disappeared. Ebe was absolutely everything. She wasn't the only one, but she was the head and the heart, a wonderful woman. In 1977, one year after a military coup, her two sons and daughter-in-law were kidnapped. Ebe found herself among a small group of women gathered in front of the presidential palace, demanding information on the mounting numbers of missing Argentinians. Stationary protests were banned, so the women began marching in circles around the Plaza de Mayo. From 1979 on, de Bonafini would become the leader of a resistance movement known as the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, women draped in white scarves to symbolize the swaddling clothes of their missing children. I always said that lions rose up inside me when they took my children. With the scarf, I feel taller. We're together. I feel like I'm holding my children. Despite the risks, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo gathered every Thursday until the fall of the dictatorship, continuing even after 1983 and the return of democracy. A number of radical positions, such as celebrating the 9-11 attacks and even suspicions of corruption, would eventually tarnish her image and render her a controversial figure, though many Argentinians still honor her as a staunch fighter for justice. And we end this week's show with a seasonal tradition, the annual White House pardoning of two Thanksgiving turkeys. This year's lucky birds were named Chocolate and Chip after Joe Biden's favorite ice cream flavor. As usual, they awaited the ceremony at a fancy hotel. At the pardoning, the U.S. president cracked some political jokes, referencing the Democrats' better-than-expected midterms performance. Biden said the season's only red wave would be if his German Shepherd commander knocks over the cranberry sauce on the dinner table. That's it for this week's edition of Inside the Americas. Thank you very much for joining us. There's more news coming up on France 24 after this.